My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Today was one of those episodes that I was really looking forward to because I had the chance to sit down and chat with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. Now, Rick is about as close as you can get to a household name in the metals and mining industry. He's an extremely well-known resource investor and commentator, and if you've been in the space for any time at all, you've no doubt heard him speak, or you've run into him at a conference, or perhaps you've watched one of his many YouTube videos. Now, I think what makes this episode unique is that we really had the chance to drill down into Rick's past and how he got his start as an investor in the natural resource space. Uh, We spoke about a ton of things, such as who he received mentorship from early in his career, how he finds the best management teams and projects to back, and why he utilizes private placements and sees them as a form of what he terms catalytic capital. Other things we spoke about include platinum, we spoke about uranium, we talked about the intensity and obsession required to make really big resource discoveries, and we spoke about what it's like to work for a total madman. I had an awesome time chatting with Rick today, so if you're an investor interested in the space, if you're a CEO or entrepreneur operating in the industry, or even if you're just starting out your career in the natural resource space and want to make a name for yourself and learn more, This is the podcast for you to listen to. So without further ado, let me please introduce Mr. Rick Rule. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we're sitting here today in your Vancouver office. You just flew in today. Is that right or last night? I've been here a couple days. Okay. So how much of the year do you tend to spend in Vancouver? Well, the plan has always been that I serve the Sprott shareholders best when the days are long in Vancouver, meaning that I'm here (laughs) in the summer. The truth is that if you work for a global organization like Sprott, you go where you have to, when you have to. But I tend to be able to spend 10 to 12 weeks a year based in Vancouver. I've heard you compare yourself to an avocado in the past, and you only want to be in climates where avocados can thrive. Yeah, that was that was a goal at one point in time. But uh, the, the truth is that I'm I, I'm more driven by interest than comfort. And while I do prefer places that avocados live, I tend to go wherever the opportunity is. So, how much of the year would you estimate you spend on the road? Uh, well, really, all of it. Uh, where I live is really where I where I pack and unpack my bags currently. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, and I've done this. I'm not complaining. I love it. I've done this for 40, 45 years. Uh, so that kind of brings me to my next question. Um, you are the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've watched your videos and lectures and talks and know a lot of people that uh, use Sprott as both clients and mining companies that have been financed there. You seem to wear a lot of hats. How would you describe what you do to someone if you just met them at a barbecue in Carlsbad? I'm an investor and speculator. First and foremost. First and foremost. uh, My first love is investing. I've been lucky in life, and I've lived a long time. And the consequence of that is that I'm fairly rich, but still focused. And I invest Sprott's money, and I invest clients' money alongside my own. 
It's important to note that when you see an investment product offered up by Sprott or myself, uh, I am always, and Sprott is always, significant owners and significant investors in all of their own projects. As an example, the Sprott Lending Fund, the first fund which is, including sidecars, an $800 million project, uh, Sprott is invested as a corporation as to 10% of the fund, and I'm invested personally in that fund. All of the equity funds that you see offered up by Sprott U.S. Holdings, where I'm the general partner, in addition to that, I'm a 10% limited partner in each fund. So there's very much an alignment of interest at Sprott between the company which invests in its own products and the senior managers who also invest in their own projects, uh, products, pardon me, and I'm no exception at all. What I really am is an investor, and I uh, allow the Sprott shareholders and the Sprott clients to invest alongside me as I invest my own funds. Okay. I want to parlay my next question in from a story. So this is actually the second time I've been in this office here. And the first was about four years ago. I just moved to Vancouver and I'd been working on mining projects for the last four years as a mining engineer. And I'd come here, I didn't have a job, I didn't have any money, I didn't have any relationships. And I sent you an email and basically just said, can we meet? And I wanted to ask your advice. And within a week we did. And you sat down with me for about an hour and a half uh, and just answered my questions about the financial and capital market space, uh, about your experience investing in mining companies and about working in Vancouver and the junior space in general, which a lot of which was new to me at the time. And I think that's an unusual uh, approach. And I saw that reiterated again when I recently changed jobs to come work with Capital Exploits. You were one of the first people that reached out and congratulated me on LinkedIn. And and you've had a tendency to reach out and to continually connect with people. And one of the key takeaways I remember from our first conversation was you said the key to success in this industry is to build a constituency uh, and to build that loyal group of followers that believe in what you're doing and buy into it. And I guess my question is, how has that uh, shaped how you approach your career, both in terms of investing in companies as well as bringing subscribers, not subscribers, sorry, clients along with you uh, into those investments? Three parts to the answer. The first is, when I was your age and younger, I had the good fortune to reach out and be schooled by amazing mentors. And so some part of that is paying forward. The fact that uh, a Seymour Schulich, as an example, or a Peter Brown would take a young Rick Rule in his 20s and shape him into a better investor means that I have an absolute obligation, which I both feel and enjoy, to do the same thing. The second thing is that what you learn in natural resource-based <coughs> businesses is that assets are latent until people make them something. And investing in people uh, particularly in an organization the size of Sprott, is absolutely critical. So de to developing a farm team, people like you, uh, with the sure and certain knowledge that people like me uh, age and then die <laughs> is an important part of building your business. The third thing is, uh, and I've learned this with the rise of social media, uh, traditional forms of advertising and marketing are fairly inefficient the audience that you're trying to address in the natural resources and hard money constituency is so small that reaching it by conventional means is very inefficient. 
reaching that same audience, not through advertising, but rather through educating them and causing them to become your constituency as a, con as a consequence of giving them something turns out to be remarkably, remarkably effective. Helping one young person advance with his or her career can and has 15 or 20 times in my life uh, exposed me to opportunity that the young person generated that I never would have seen in any other circumstance. So these tiny investments of your time have really paid off exponentially throughout your career? Absolutely, and in fact, as it, as it ends up, the people who mentored me when I was young uh, ended up generating enormous benefit out of my own energy and tenacity. I watched it work because I watched people go through the same process in the 70s yep. that I'm going with going through now. So you've had the chance to work with dozens if not hundreds of mining entrepreneurs. Where where do you see a lot of them falling down when it comes to building a constituency around their story or their product or what they're trying to create? Create very simply, the value creation mechanism is rocks to money. And in Canada, too often, the mechanism gets perverted and it goes rocks to stocks and stocks to money. Yes. The story becomes important. If you're working for a Lamborghini, you may very well get a Lamborghini, but you won't get rich. You get rich by generating value, not through consumption. And I would suspect that there have been many spectacular careers that have been ruined in Canada as a consequence of a short-term focus on material benefit rather than a focus on becoming wealthy by generating wealth for others. And do you find that particularly a problem on the TSXV and here in Vancouver especially? I do. Yeah. Uh, I think that the uh, London market in terms of the orientation of <clears throat> talent to task and particularly the Australian market with regards to orientation of talent to task are much better markets for investors than the TSXV. Well, that actually brings me to another point from our first conversation, which was basically you said, don't get caught up in the Vancouver scene and thinking it's the center of the world and that there's a lot of good mining and good mining entrepreneurship being done in other places. And that actually kind of leads me to segue into my next question is something I've always wondered is how does an American uh, end up in Vancouver? I ended up in Vancouver two different ways. I wanted to be in the natural resources business in the okay. first instance, and Vancouver was the epicenter of that. The University of British Columbia actually had a nascent natural resource finance major at that point in time. The second thing is that in the uh, late 1960s, it was very clear that a young American was going to travel, <laughs> uh, and I thought, Vancouver or Saigon? The truth is that Part of my path to Canada was paved by Muhammad Ali, who looked into a television set in 1968 and said, uh, I ain't got no quarrel with no Viet Congs. None of them call me nigger. <laughs> and I looked at the TV and thought, you know, he's right. I got no quarrel with these people. I'm not going to go fight that war. So I came here. So you showed up in Vancouver. How old were you at this point? 18. 18. Did you enroll in the university? Or? I enrolled in the University of British Columbia. I became a landed immigrant in Canada. So the only stories I've heard about this is you being a bouncer at a bar, to then owning a bar, to then getting in jo into bar fights with various brokers around the city. 
All of that's true. When I came to Canada, I had to have a job, and the only transferable skill set I had as an 18-year-old was that I'd boxed for 10 years, and I was a big guy. So my first job in Canada was a bouncer. It, the place doesn't exist anymore. The Broadway Hotel, which was at the corner of Columbia and Hastings, yep. literally and figuratively in Skid Row. Uh, among other things, I got a room at the hotel for free, which turned out to be overpriced. <laughs> uh, and I, as a consequence, worked my way up through various establishments to the point where I came to be an owner. Uh, and I won't take you through the whole story, it's too long and boring, but I became an owner uh, of, a, uh, of a bar uh, at Hornby and Dunsmuir that was sort of epicenter for the nascent resource brokers in Vancouver. And it turned out that although I was a reasonably diligent student at the University of British Columbia, I learned an awful lot more about mine finance, serving whiskey to people like Peter Brown, than I ever would have cracking books at university. It is true that I was involved in various altercations with various <laughs> people who became um, serially successful in Vancouver. Uh, there's no particular point in in. Uh, exposing all of that. I will say that it sort of amused me that it uh, became a badge of honor in later years to claim that they had been thrown down the stairs at Sneaky Pete's by myself. <laughs> I'm alleged to have thrown many more people down the stairs than I actually did. And it does amuse me that people uh, hold up drunken brawling uh, <laughs> as some form of badge of authenticity or honor. So Besides fighting, you come to Vancouver, you enroll in university. I had read that you initially intended to be a resource-focused tax lawyer. You're a good student. Uh, I wanted to do international taxation in natural resources. I had the extraordinary good fortune of meeting uh, a legendary tax lawyer in Vancouver by the name of Warren Mitchell. Uh, an old partner with Thorsten Steins and I sat down with him very earnestly and asked him how to go about that and he uh, told me that he'd been watching me for some time he liked me and he thought I'd be a horrible lawyer uh, and in fact that I wouldn't enjoy it all and he said as an independent businessman that I had the skill sets to be an investor and that's what happened. What drew you to tax law initially? Uh, hatred of taxation probably I wanted to defend people against the avariciousness of government. So I had also read that when you decided to make the move from uh, you know, student, bar owner, potential tax lawyer into investing, you came across a very good mentor early on uh, by the name of Peter Kundal, who is a very legendary uh, value investor here. What was, your, what was that meeting like and how it sounds like that was sort of a watershed moment for you? Changed my life. Uh, Warren Mitchell said that Peter Kundal would be a better mentor for me than he. Uh, I visited with Peter Kundal more out of a sense of curiosity than anything else. Uh, I had a, a meeting with him where he gave me a copy of a book called The Intelligent Investor, a classic book by Ben Graham. He said, you know, call me back next week and we'll visit. I began to read the book out of curiosity and could not put it down. I read it twice over the weekend, called back Peter Kundal, and my life had changed. It was wonderful. So what happened after that? Did you start working with him, or did you start investing on your own with your own money? What was the trajectory after that? I never worked for Peter formally. Uh, I, uh, 
hung on to him, I guess, in that he would give me assignments to further my education, and I would give him the results of the assignments. And then he would look at uh, the work that I had generated on his behalf and critique it. It was absolutely spectacularly lucky set of circumstances for me. Peter had an, um, he had an amazing sense of how to do fundamental research. He was an instinctive contrarian. He was much more an appraiser than anything else, but he was also uh, very intellectually curious and 100% generous. He was hoping for the success of everyone who he touched. Uh, he was really, truly a unique human being. You know, many investment managers are extremely covetous of their track record and extremely competitive yes. and want to do better than anybody else. Peter wanted to do well, and he wanted you to do well, too. Where do you think that more balanced approach came from in him? Uh, I think very high intelligence. I think he was just a uniquely intelligent person who came to understand that the, the better off everybody else became, the better off he became, too. So this, this um, nascent start as a, as a value investor, you progressed into the natural resource space where you initially had an interest anyways, but then you've referred to yourself on more than one occasion as a speculator as well. Can, for some of our listeners who might not know, what is the difference between an investor and a speculator? Well, I don't know in every context. For myself, I joke that an investor looks at return on capital employed and a speculator prays for return of capital employed. <laughs> I suspect what a speculator does is take outsized but definable risks uh, in the hope rather than the expectation of outside demand. Peter Kundal taught me that you could limit the risks of speculation by understanding the nature of speculation better than your competitors. In the early parts of the 1970s, as an example, there were often uh, redundant assets in companies, company, uh, assets in companies that weren't necessarily germane to their primary focus that had value, where the value wasn't recognized on the balance sheet of the income statement. So as an example, Peter Kundal would look at a brewery and look at the fact that on a EBIT to enterprise value basis, the brewery wasn't undervalued, but perhaps they owned a couple, a couple hundred acres of land in some urban area uh, that had superb value. And so Peter taught me to speculate in ways huh. that lowered my risk relative to the risk experienced by people who didn't look as deeply and patiently at the underlying assets. And things that are just not receiving their true value on the balance sheet. And was he able Correct. to acquire yeah. that and separate it out? And or the income statement. And then he introduced me to the work of Marty Whitman. Uh, and Marty Whitman looked at cyclical value. He looked at assets that were in industries that are, were out of favor, but cyclical, where you tried to anticipate the cash flow that would come into the business as the price for the product changes. Now this is extremely germane to commodities. Yes. And it was this insight that's really responsible for my own success over the last 45 years. So early on in your career, you made a tremendous amount of money and then proceeded to lose a tremendous amount of money. In fact, more than you initially made. Yes, that's true. 
uh, it's an interesting set of circumstances. Both of them are interesting. In the 1970s, of course, early on in the 1970s, I got involved in resource industries. We had a tremendous boom. The gold price went from $35 to $850. The oil price went from $3 to $30. And like many young men, uh, I became hubris ridden and I confused a bull market with brains. <laughs> When the commodity markets collapsed in the early 1980s, I learned just how smart I was, which is to say, not very. The lesson I learned is, of course, that markets work. The cure for low prices are low prices, and the cure for high prices are high prices. But as you suggest, I became in the 1970s an extremely wealthy young man, and on my 29th birthday in 1982, I used my analytical skills to figure out that I had a negative net worth. <laughs> Uh, I did not have to file for bankruptcy. I was a good earner, and the people who I owed money to were forbearing and believed in me and gave me the time to work out my finances and pay them all back, including a bank that itself subsequently went bankrupt. <laughs> so something I've always worried about, and or not worried about, but thought about and dealt with myself is how do you recommend investors manage failure and and manage the emotional roller coaster that can often be associated with these big wins and then potentially bigger losses in that we see often in the mining and commodity space I think I have to request recast the question because I don't think that investors if they're good investors should have to deal with failure okay uh, speculators however need to anticipate and in fact forecast failure what I do in the exploration business is understand that the expectation is failure, that more times than not, the decisions that I make will turn out to be incorrect. The first thing that you have to do, I think, as an equity speculator in resources, is you have to sell. When the reason to own a stock goes away, the stock must go away. Being down 30% in a position beats the hell out of being down 70% in a position. Mm -hmm. But too often, one is inclined to manufacture reasons to continue to hold a position that shouldn't be held. <laughs> the second thing, I think, is to understand that it's up to you to limit the risk. And you do that by ignoring the narrative and paying more attention to the fundamentals associated with the speculation. In exploration, as an example, people believe that it's an asset-based business. That's not true. Most exploration properties would be much more precisely characterized as liabilities than assets because <laughs> the probability is failure. The asset really is the intellectual capital of the people. Exploration is much more a research and development activity than it is an asset-based activity. And if you understand that the quality of the scientists and the close correlation of their past skill sets to the task at hand is the most important determinant of success, that's the first part of being successful uh, as an exploration speculator. Now, that leads me to something I've wondered is how do you evaluate and choose the management teams you want to work with. I've known a few that you've uh, backed previously and and you've engendered tremendous loyalty amongst a few of them uh, who swear by you on all their projects. Uh, and clearly you've had people you've serial, serially backed as well. So what are the qualities that you look for and the, the circumstances that make it the right decision? Well, the best way is that people who I know and love and trust 
introduced me to people who they believe that I should come to know and love and trust. Uh, but the second thing is that I've become pretty good at helping young scientists focus their own career. In other words, I've been able, by being old and developing a reputation, I've been able to influence some young entrepreneurs in terms of focusing their skill sets on ways that are probably more beneficial than they otherwise would have done. But, you know, a real example is networking. I had the extraordinary good fortune very early on in my career <coughs> to come into contact and invest with and help Adolf Lundin. Yes. Adolf Lundin introduced me to Chester Miller. Uh, went on to go, to do Glamis, which became Gold Corp, of course. Chester Miller uh, introduced me to an amazingly smart and driven young scientist by the name of Ross Beatty. Yes. Uh, I've been successful with Ross for 30 years. Ross Beatty introduced me to Bob Quartermain, who I've backed. And so you sort of lurch from one very high-quality person to another very high-quality person. And I think where my secret sauce comes in is two places. I've become an extremely good consumer of scientists. I've come to understand what part of science they're good at, and I'm pretty good at understanding people's biases. And rather than backing people in ventures that they would like to try, but ones where I consider themselves to be unqualified based on their resume, I try to steer them to places where their past successes will be much more closely correlated with the task at hand. And the second thing I do is I love an entrepreneur who goes into a sector because he or she believes in it when that sector is out of favor. So John Borshoff is an example, one of the most amazing and determined entrepreneurs I ever met wanted to be in the uranium business in the early 19, pardon me, the late 1990s, when okay. nobody in their right mind would be in uranium. The fact that nobody wanted to be in it meant he had no competition. And his drive, his pure drive, enabled him to stay alive in the business through four exquisitely bad years. So that's really what I look and where is John now for John Borshoff is making a comeback improbably at the age of 69, backed again by his old friend Rick Rule in another trough <laughs> in the uranium market. So this kind of goes back to that old saying that people rise to their level of incompetence. Uh, and it's so I've seen this in my own career that people get good at something and then they believe they can be good at anything. Uh, and I've often thought the key to success is knowing what you're good at and being very good at that thing. So if you're an amazing geologist, stay as an amazing geologist and not a mediocre CEO. And if you're a, oh, but a, more importantly than that, understand the part of geology that you're very good at. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a geologist who really understands epithermal gold and porphyries in accreted volcanic terrain in the Cordilleran probably has no business looking for VMS or Archean deposits in the Canadian Shield. My friend uh, Brent Cook, as an yes. example, uh, he's on a first name <coughs> basis with most rock assemblages in the Cordillera. 
Yep. He's instinctively good in young volcanics and accreted terrain. That isn't to say he's incompetent in other terrains, but if you take him out into exposed rock in the, in the uh, basin and range in the United States, he has the immediate sense looking uh, at, at the rock packages as to how they were formed and their sort of orogenesis. He has done the empirical processes so well and for so long that the empirical processes for him become intuitive. And a gift like that is something that you need to stick with. So have you seen that as a consistent trait in the very big success stories in mining, the Lucas Lundins or the Ross Beatties or the Robert Friedlands, that they know their their area of expertise as well as the people that work for them and they're able to I guess keep the ship on course and keep people in their domain of of expertise. Well certainly when you talk about uh, Adolf Lundin, Lucas Lundin and Robert Friedland they have an entrepreneurial skill set that actually trumps their technical skill sets yes. and I would suggest that uh, their real skill sets are uh, in the narrative, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but as puppeteers. Uh, they can look at a task and assemble the people necessary, necessary to propel the company to success, uh, which is a very different skill set, uh, less a technical skill set, and more almost a sociological skill set. Mm-hmm. Robert Friedland has been amazingly successful because he can identify, recruit, and motivate the best scientists in the world. Robert, if you look back at his career, if you look at the exploration successes that he's enjoyed, not M&A, but exploration successes that he's enjoyed, I would say that really since Cecil Rhodes, uh, his career has been unparalleled. Gross Rosebell. Fairbanks, Boise's Bay, Oyotolgoy, Flat Reef, Kamoa. This is an astonishing track record. Robert didn't discover those, but Robert identified the scientists who did and supported the scientists who did. And importantly, and I'm focusing on Robert because he's instructive to the question that you asked me, which goes back to a different question. Being successful in exploration, being successful in exploration involves a high, high, high tolerance for failure and mistake because it's the expectation. Robert Friedland on more than one occasion, like Jim Bob Moffat, has said to uh, exploration people who worked for him who were, rego- who were uh, involved in a failed effort, that was the expectation. It was a good idea. Dust yourself off. Yes, take a weekend off to feel the disappointment associated with the fact that you had an idea that was wrong. But don't take this as failure. This is part of a process. Hmm. Is there any next generation, younger mining entrepreneurs that you see that have the potential to fill those roles or to fill those gaps as the Robert Friedlands of the world start to get older and to retire to leave the industry? The uh, third generation, mine is the second generation. Okay. The uh, third generation has very, very, very deep bench. Uh, they are, in most regards, better than we are. Uh, and I, I'm going to leave out 
lots and lots of names simply because there's so many. But an example would be Marco Day. He's in his early 40s. He's had uh, three, <laughs> three successes so far. Yeah. I can just focus in Vancouver. The team behind uh, Oren Resources, Sean, Ivan, Michael Kasawan, uh, and in, since you mentioned it, the Lundin family, this is astonishing. The third generation of that family, grandchildren who were born not with silver spoons in their mouth, but rather with platinum spoons <laughs> in their mouth, are as smart and hardworking as the grandfather was. I visited with Adam Lundin recently, who's the third generation Lundin, absolutely driven, absolutely brilliant. I'm not sure how the family does it. Maybe there's something in the water. That's what I was going to ask. Uh, I mean, you see this a little bit in uh, Swedish companies. I think the Lego company has a similar dynasty of people, of a family that's run it. How do you maintain that level of drive and motivation and expectation for multiple generations? Or is it an unknown? Not a skill set that I've been able to identify. No. Okay. Then I'll use this as a chance to shift. Um, You've said uh, previously that for the first time since probably the early 90s, we're entering into what you've termed a true exploration market. What does that mean? And what are you looking at in terms for, from Sprott's perspective? Well, first of all, people are burned out with exploration. Okay. So we don't have much competition. And you can align yourself with the best explorationists on the planet at wholesale rather than retail. There's no expectation of success. So there's no <laughs> expectation built into the share price. Now, if you happen to be somebody who wants market performance before the long weekend, this is not the right place for you. You're yes. not going to have a stock that trades up on stupidity. Uh, however, I think that going back to your question, that we have all of the elements in place for a great exploration market. The first is that the mining industry, and to a lesser extent the oil and gas industry, has both underinvested and misinvested in exploration for 20 years. Underinvested in the sense that M&A and Brownfield's exploration uh, were the sort of de rigueur ways to build mining companies for the last 20 years. Yes. Uh, in the oil and gas business, the so-called unconventional or shale-hosted or basin-centric plays uh, really took over from conventional exploration in the last 15 years. So conventional exploration has suffered in oil and gas too. At the same time, particularly in Canada, uh, exploration came to be done for capital markets rather than for discovery. And so too many companies were formed around projects that had failed in the last three booms, with the first exploration expenditure twinning the one hole in the project <laughs> that had succeeded maybe two or three times before. In other words, exploration was geared to moving a stock from 25 cents to 75 cents and providing a salary for the management team for the next 18 months rather than to the view of discovery. The consequence of that is that the mining industry now, from top to bottom, is missing a development pipeline and is missing an exploration pipeline. Where we are now is that we have suffered through the worst of the excesses in the mining business. Mining companies are beginning to generate fairly healthy free cash, but they're in liquidation. Every day that you mine and you don't replace the reserves, your business gets smaller. Yes. So the first thing that's going to happen now is a really, really interesting merger and acquisition cycle. You're beginning to see that now. 
And as the merger and acquisition cycle goes down from producing projects, Anevson as an example, into development stage projects, uh, this uh, M&A will develop an appreciation for earlier and earlier stage projects, which will ultimately translate into successful efforts in exploration, things like Hot Madden, the Mariana deposit, yep. being taken over for fairly eye-popping prices, and ultimately an appreciation or a reappreciation for exploration itself. What I like about this is that this eventuality is just plain as day to me. It might be two years from now, it might be three years from now. It doesn't matter. The truth is that it's inevitable. And I can participate in the trend today because other people have less patience and want to have their money in what used to work, not what's going to work. So for me, this is a perfect circumstance. So what's the advent, or rather, what's the strategy to take advantage of this situation that you see playing out? I think three strategies. The first is that statistically, the most successful way to participate in exploration as a speculator is through the prospect generators. Understanding that the intellectual capital in the company is more important than the physical capital and understanding that you farm out your exploration projects. You dilute yourself at the property level rather than the intellectual capital level. That has been really the architecture of my own success over the last 35 years. When I was in university, uh, admittedly a long time ago, uh, I was taught in economic geology that one in 3,000 mineralized anomalies became a mine. So the overall odds of exploration success, or the value proposition offered up by Howe Street, is taking a one in 3,000 chance for a 10 to one return. Makes the BC lottery look like a hell of a deal. Yeah. By contrast, uh, and I'm gonna get these numbers wrong because I'm old and my memory's not as good as it was, <laughs> but I believe that I have invested over 35 years, wrong phrase, speculated over 35 years in 65 public prospect generators. Okay. I have been part of now, I think, 23 economic discoveries and participated in 21 takeovers. So if you juxtapose the numbers 1 in 3,000 with 21 out of 65, you will see that the results over 35 years in prospect generation are three standard deviations better than the expected norm yeah. for the market as a whole. That's astonishing. The second way that I will look to participate in the exploration space will be uh, on successful efforts, meaning that when I get the third, gen the, the third dimension, when I see good drill holes in prospective terrain, one of the things I've learned is that sometimes a 25 cent stock that goes to a dollar is cheaper at a dollar with good data Right. it was at 25 cents. <clears throat> Many people don't have the courage in their technical staffs to pay a dollar for a stock that three weeks ago was at 25 cents. But sometimes if you have the data to support it, as I say, that dollar stock is way cheaper than it had been at 25 cents. And the third thing is to continue to remember that some teams are serially successful and most teams are never successful at all. So always align myself in exploration with the best possible people. What do you see the role right now of private placements playing in the market. Uh, I know Sprott is uh, well known for doing private placements with 
many uh, junior and early stage exploration companies. How important do you see that from both the perspective of the company as a way of aligning, uh, or rather of gaining financing, as well as an opportunity for the investor? Well, there's many new ways for companies to gain capital, which I think is wonderful. There's many new and smart capital sources, mm -hmm. and the industry is much healthier for it. I do private placements myself. In other words, I think it's probably of more benefit to me necessarily than the company. Okay. I do private placements for three principal reasons. The first is that in exploration, the expectation is failure, which means that your successes have to amortize your failures with room left over for an acceptable rate of return. And I structure private placement with warrants. <laughs> if I provide catalytic capital and I generate the capital, to, I, I give the company the means to generate the success. I want to participate in the reward. The warrant gives me the right but not the obligation to participate in success uh, that the capital that I gave the company uh, allows them to um, you know, you know, enjoy. Yep. The second thing is that participating in a private placement means that you are studying the value proposition very carefully. I've learned that success in exploration is really answering a series of unanswered questions. And when somebody comes to me to propose a private placement, I'm able to say to them, right now, what's catalytic? What are you going to use my capital for? If they say that they're going to use their, my capital for, uh, you know, pretty receptionists and plush offices and salaries and stuff, I'm probably less interested. But if they can explain to me the value proposition in place, it's a, it's a much, much, much more focused way to invest. The third thing that I've learned myself is that there's a temptation to own too many stocks. Uh, and what I've learned is that the number of stocks that I allow myself to own must correspond with the amount of work I'm willing to do. I do much better allocating money in focused five or $10 million shots than I do taking $250,000 aftermarket positions across a broader range of companies. Right, and so that enables you to understand the company and the project better and to also, I guess, be willing to allocate the mental energy towards it given the significance of the funds involved. And of course, always to plot an exit strategy. Uh, if you if you're taking a $5 million position in a company, as an example, you don't have the luxury of liquidity. Right. And you have to think very much what will constitute success, what will constitute failure, and how you will, in fact, structure and affect your exit. Okay. Now, previous to uh, the exploration market, or the true exploration market, uh, yourself and Sprott in general, I believe, was really focused on the idea of option plays. Uh, and you've moved more away from that now. We've seen a better metals market, but this probably still exists in a few what are considered truly contrarian areas. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the one you're most known for and something we're very interested in right now at Capitalist Exploits is uranium. What are your thoughts on the uranium market right now? Um, are you still heavily invested in it? Where, where, where do you see that going? I am heavily invested in the uranium market. It's a, it's a perfect market for me. Other people hate it, but I regard success in uranium as inevitable, not eminent. 
Many people who don't have the courage of their convictions, as we said earlier, have trauma holding stock over a long weekend. Yeah. I have learned that if I speculate in things that have to come true, where my only risk is time, I'm asking myself a when question, not an if question, and that's a higher quality question. Let me go into this thesis. The International Energy Agency suggests that the total cost associated with producing a pound of uranium, and by the way, this includes cost of capital and prior year write-downs. This is a more comprehensive number than all in sustaining capital costs. Okay. Uh, that the total cost associated with producing a pound of uranium is in the range of 60 US dollars. So the industry makes the stuff for 60 and they sell it for 25. They lose $35 a pound and being miners they try and make it up on volume. Mm -hmm. This is unsustainable. So your listener says, well why on earth would I buy into an industry in liquidation? Here's why. Although people hate uranium, not merely they're bored by it, they hate uranium. Uranium is about 15% of worldwide base load power. If the price of uranium doesn't go up in the next five or six years, the lights go out. What do you think is more likely to happen? I think the price has to go up. I agree. So if you buy a resource that is not economic at $25, but would be highly economic at $60, and you commit yourself to being part of the process of keeping the company alive until that point in time when the rising tide floats it, you will not merely do well, but very well. Okay. And do you have a similar view on platinum at the moment? Platinum is a little cloudier mm -hmm. because of the substitution effect with palladium. Yes. The attractiveness of the platinum market to me, though, is very similar in the sense that uh, most platinum in the world is produced in South Africa and Russia. While I disagree with other uh, speculators in the sense that I see Russia improving as opposed to deteriorating, uh, South Africa is much more challenging. The economic conditions on the Platte Reef, with the exception of Robert Friedland's efforts there, suggest that about 60% of world platinum production is uneconomic at current prices and will become more uneconomic. The question is going to be, uh, how will the recovery in diesel vehicle sales uh, occur? Will the Chinese ever impose uh, low sulfur standard, standards in, di in diesel? By the way, that would change the platinum market absolutely yes. yeah. overnight. And uh, what will be the continuation of large-scale uh, emissions reduction in things like power plants. The, the catalytic converters writ large <laughs> on mm -hmm. thermal power plants. The demand side of platinum is the thing I don't quite yet understand. The supply side of platinum I understand very well and it's extremely challenged. And this somewhat political shift that we're seeing happen in South Africa now should have an impact as well. When we're seeing the Economic Freedom Fighters group uh, was recently saying that they wanted all the land, uh, all property ownership nationalized, and there'd be no property ownership in uh, South Africa. What do you, what do you think this is going to? How is it going to affect miners' willingness to go in and to look in South Africa, which is one of the richest, uh, you know, mineral-producing nations in the world, particularly for platinum? Uh, I, I think that the platinum industry should uh, reach an accommodation <coughs> with the African National Congress and even with the Economic Freedom Fighters. Since 60% of the platinum production in South Africa is uneconomic, and since it's 
gobbled up capital from the outside world at a very great rate. I think the right thing to do is give Malema what he wants uh, and let him choke on his own failure. <laughs> I would give the economic freedom fighters and the National Union of Mine Workers and the ANC all of the uneconomic shafts. I would say we have $10 billion in sunk capital here and you have 90,000 redundant workers. Best of luck, chump. From what I know um, about you, libertarian values are very close to your heart. Sure. How has that impacted the way you look at risk and at mining projects and at resources in general? Well, first, the first thing is that my, my clients don't pay me to have a philosophy. And I try, okay. I try not to let the fact that I believe in the non-aggression principle uh, determine how I invest other people's money or lend money. What it has done is changed my outlook on political risk. People like you and I, uh, people listening to this interview can't see us, but both fairly Aryan-looking <laughs> males, people like you and I tend to believe that money stolen from us by non-white people in a language other than English uh, by processes that don't accord to the rule of law is somehow more gone. Or put differently, money stolen from us in British Columbia by the legislature <coughs> according to the rule of law in English is less gone than would otherwise be the case. I'm a foreign investor right here in the People's Republic of Vancouver and when people talk about political risk, we have a fascist and, in fact, anti-Chinese racist city council in Vancouver, backed up by a socialist fascist Vancouver legislature that has decided, after they've trapped my capital in real estate, that they have the right to impose a 3.5% annual fee on the incest value of my property. Mm -hmm. Now, what that really means is that over 18 years, they're going to nationalize it. And I am I'm supposed to believe that Vancouver is less risky than Kinshasa, which is not the truth. The difference, of course, is that in Kinshasa I might be shot. And so far, the socialists have decided, rather, that they will tax me to death as opposed to shoot me. It's interesting to me that when you talk about political <coughs> risk in Vancouver, you ignore the fact that the racist and fascist Vancouver City Council has gone farther in promoting the agenda of Trump that is a nativist, racist agenda than even Trump has been able to do. The only wall we have in North America is a fiscal wall around Vancouver <laughs> that's been put up by the sort of Kitsilano granola eaters. It's the fact that you're able to identify political risk where it is rather than according to a narrative that allows you to use libertarian principles to be a better exist, a better investor. Do you think that's helped some mining entrepreneurs move into areas that other people were unwilling to touch because they were able to remove their minds from the common narrative and take an actual evaluation of the risk and how things are done there and work within that system and succeed where Absolutely. many, many people have failed? Absolutely. Absolutely. The easy to find big deposits in jurisdictions that we feel comfortable with have mostly been found. Yes. I mean, yes, we may found another <clears throat> 10 million ounce discovery in the Canadian Shield, but we're not going to stumble over 
It's not going to be Kirkland Lake where you move some moss aside and there's gold staring at it. It's going to be covered. Those big deposits are going to be in Congo. They're going to be in Kazakhstan. They're going to be in hard places. And if you look back at the big discoveries that we've enjoyed as a market, Arequipa in Peru, right after the Shining Path was gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, the flak jackets had come off, but the currency certainly wasn't convertible. Adolf Lundin's success with uh, Vostok Nafta in Russia, a hundred bagger. Uh, Adolf's successes in Sudan and Syria, Robert Friedland's successes in Congo. The truth is that the truly outstanding deposits, the 10 million ounce deposits, are going to be found in places that we regard as hard. Is there any particular jurisdictions that you're looking to right now as highly prospective that is potentially not on everyone's radar? Uh, Russia. Russia, I think, is highly, highly prospective. It's really, really, really a hard place. Yes. As my friend Adolf Landin said, the Russians have a regrettable tendency to adjudicate commercial disputes with 180 degrees uh, grains of lead at uh, 2,200 feet per second through the temple. So it's a tough place to do business. I'm also attracted to the whole Tethian metallogenic belt, that okay. belt of rocks that goes effectively from Turkey through Mongolia. Uh, it has mostly been explored by means like picks and mules uh, when it's very amenable to things like aster imagery and all of the modern exploration yep. uh, techniques that we have. So I'm I'm certainly attracted to it. I would love an excuse, a sane excuse, a way to go into Bolivia. I'm looking forward to uh, my second adventure in Venezuela at some point in time. I mm -hmm. hope I'm not too old that I won't have the ability to go back into Venezuela when it sorts itself out. Uh, so, you know, any sort of number of rogues galleries interests me. So my final question is, do you have any advice for younger entrepreneurs, 25, 30, they're a geologist or they're an engineer, they want to start a mining company, maybe they kind of, they want to come to Rick Rule and ask for their first financing. What do you look for and what do you recommend for them to get on the right path? Early in the career, I suggest that they go to work for a Robert Friedland or a Ross Beattie, mm -hmm. that they get experience, they don't need a lot of experience, but two or three years working for a madman, an absolute madman, somebody who is so driven that it doesn't occur to him that he shouldn't call them at 2.30 in the morning, that they <laughs> wouldn't be as interested in what they're doing as he is. Remember that when Robert Friedland calls you at 2.30 in the morning, it's because he desperately wants your opinion on something. He isn't disregarding you. He's showing you respect. And learning that sort of determination, learning that sort of passion, being challenged, being prodded, being screamed at, being hugged uh, every week yep. gives you the ability to then, in fact, yourself succeed. The first thing to do is to go to work for a total, total madman and absor absorb that intensity yourself. Do you think those characteristics can be taught and absorbed, or is there is there a class of people that are just born crazy and you know destined to become that? I don't know the answer to that. I really truly don't. But I think you know when I look at the uh, when I look at the common point among these geniuses who have been become successful, and other geniuses who I know have, who have become moderately successful but not billionaires, mm -hmm. the difference is passion and intensity. 
All right. I think that's probably a good place to end it. So thank you very much for taking the time today. If readers want, or listeners want to learn more about you or Sprout, where would be the best place for them to look? The best thing to do is email me directly. My email address is rrule, that's R-R-U-L-E at SproutGlobal.com. And as a special inducement to do that, any of your readers or listeners who send me by email their resource portfolio with both the name and the symbol in the text to make my life easy, I'll rank those portfolios and send them back. Absolutely no obligation. It's the way we get to know people. All right, guys, that's a great opportunity. So thanks for listening. And Rick, thanks again for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.